Hey, Jason. Yes, Dave, I'm here. What's orange and sounds like a parrot? <laughs> I don't know. A carrot. <laughs> <laughs> you get me every time on that because I'm like trying to be serious. I'm like, this is not going to be funny. And as soon as you ask the question, it's immediately funny. I don't even care what the answer no, is. That's good. Musician Mindset is a conversation series that extracts the performance and preparation thought process from world-class musicians, leaving you with wisdom and exercises to level up your musical journey. Welcome to a special episode of Musician Mindset, where today Dave and I are going to explore our musical influences, uh, songs and, and albums and whatever else may come of the conversation that uh, have taken us on our path, um, and hopefully you guys get some value out of this to kind of see where we're coming from um, mentally and musically, and um, where we kind of draw some of the questions from when we when we um, bring on our guests. So Dave, let's start with you, um, and we'll kind of go back and forth here, ping pong it, on either album or song, or do you remember the, the song that, that got you? Well, I think... For you and I doing a show together, there's really only one place to start. <laughs> yes. The LZ. The LZ. Um, yeah, Led Zeppelin. Uh, really, our friendship was born out of a love of Led Zeppelin. Sure. You know? sure. I mean, yeah. Um, Led Zeppelin, I can't overstate the influence that's been on my whole life. Um, I discovered them probably in junior high. Um I remember my dad didn't like the music I was listening to at the time. I was listening to like, I don't know, just stuff with like bad language or whatever. Mm-hmm. And my dad made me a deal. He's like, if you turn in all your CDs to me of uh, music that I don't think you should be listening to, I'm going to, I'll take you and buy you like some CDs that would be more appropriate. And I remember I got that big four CD Led Zeppelin box set out of that deal. Mm-hmm. And that was the best thing that ever happened to me. Cause like, changed my life forever. And the cool thing about that box set was it wasn't a particular album. I mean, you know, it's like a four CD best of Led Zeppelin basically. Mm -hmm. And everything is on there and you get the full, it's not even in chronological order. It's just like a awesome sampler of Led Zeppelin. So that the whole approach and sound and everything, I mean, it's incredible to me that 40, 50 years later, with all the technology and that we have, people are still trying to get their drums to sound as good as John Bonham. Why, right. Why can't we do it? <laughs> yeah. Why? Literally, it's not possible. It's why? the magic, man. Why is it not possible? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, mic placement, all that stuff. Yeah. And all, all the plugins you can use. It It's just a testament, man, to um, the touch of the player. I think. Absolutely. I think. It's the sound of his drums. It's the way he tuned. I think there are a lot of misconceptions about how Bonham actually tuned his drums. People don't understand his his method there and just his touch, man. Like I think it's really misunderstood that he was just like this bashing barbaric rock drummer and that couldn't be further from the truth, man. Absolutely. So much finesse. Absolutely. So much feel, so much swing into all of his playing. Um like forget everything else, just his feel is untouchable. I mean, it's, you could try your whole life. I have. Yeah. You can't, you know. Okay. We promise that we're not going to make this a whole episode about Led Zeppelin, (laughs) but let us riff here for a few minutes. Bear with us. 
I, I think listening to a band for as long as we have, um, you get to go through different phases of your listening experience, right? Mm-hmm. You get like your first wave of what is this? Yep. And then as we mature as musicians, the the music, in my opinion, has gotten even better. Yep. Because then you appreciate like what you're talking about, the the touch, you know, like the, just the intricacies of the recording and the the composition and the this mix of wildness with incredible precision and mm-hmm. accuracy. So uh, what's interesting, and I, I, we've got to start asking our other guests this, is how many people in their <clears throat> mid to late 30s, <laughs> early 40s, <clears throat> musician <laughs> friends that we have, got inspired through that box set? Because I have that sitting in my office. Yeah. Uh, because somebody gave that to me. That the was orange my, one with the... Yeah, yeah. I got to sit in my yep. office, man. Yep. And that was that was my introduction as well to oh, Led Zeppelin on, an, on, an, um, on a deeper level. Yeah. So like for me, it was... The very first time was was watching VH1 when they played music videos, seeing the song remains the same mm-hmm. and no quarter was there. And yep. there's Jimmy Page standing in this fog, you yep. know, and he goes on this riffing guitar solo. Uh, I didn't even play guitar, yeah. you know, at that point. Uh, and I was into I like was listening to Michael Jackson music, you right. know, like stuff like that. And I just remember seeing that and going, "What is this?" Yep. This is amazing. And then uh, I was talking to a neighbor of mine, you know, I was a kid then, uh, who's like, no, 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 this is what you got to listen to. And he gave me that box set Mm -hmm. to listen to. And then I remember the very first song I put on was The Battle of Evermore. Oh, good. And hear that. And you're like, whoa. (laughs) Like, this is good, deep. Yeah. This is crazy. Because it just, it sounds like ancient, you know? And and, uh, like, I feel like I'm going to be in a, like, a battle. Yeah. Uh, so, so fantastic, but, um, yeah, like so for I, me, I, I didn't discover song remains the same until a lot later, but our mutual friend, Joel Martin has almost your same story. His first intro to them was watching the the movie of it. And I remember him telling me, he's like, man, I saw that. And I just thought Jimmy Page was an actual wizard. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, I thought I was watching a wizard and I had to know what this was. It's the truth. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that crazy how like the visuals yeah. uh, can like completely alter your initial perception of yeah. people, you yeah. know? And uh, I remember flipping through that book that mm-hmm. came with the, yeah. the box set and, yep. and looking at it and just being like, like, who are these guys? Yep. And and then again, it's like the, as you mature, you know, and you start to understand, you know, like the whole culture around it and everything. It's just, it was, it's been such an, just an interesting experience, you yeah. know, following a band and and um, you go on you to know. learn that they actually are wizards, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's the truth. And and you know, as much as we work at our craft, there's there's something to be said for just having that little bit of magic, yeah. you know? And, and um, you know, I think each of us has discovered that on our own playing, you know, as a, and all of our guests talk about, you know, finding out who they are as artists or mm-hmm. as performers and, and dialing into that. Uh, that's what was so special about the music of the you know, 50s, 60s, and 70s is, is that these artists weren't trying to be anything other than really themselves. You yeah. know, a lot of these guys, you know, they were trying to emulate some of the blues musicians, but... Um, they had nothing to lose. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yep. it wasn't really like we were trying to build a pop career. It was like, let's make authentic music and be the best that we could possibly be at it. Yep. So, okay. And it, it, w- okay. We will stop talking about Let's <laughs> yeah. One more thing I have to say. Um, <laughs> Go a half hour easy on this. It's music that rewards you for paying attention. Right. And that is the reason why it endures and... I get deeper and deeper into it every year that goes by. No doubt. I could name 
10 other bands that I listened to when I was 15 years old that at the time, you know, Led Zeppelin and all these other bands, it's just cool stuff that I listen to. Mm -hmm. I go back to it, you know, 20 years later and I'm like, that stuff, it doesn't hold up. Like I can see through all the holes in it and everything. And you go back to Led Zeppelin and it does just get better because the thing is, as your ear develops and as your mind develops, as you get older, you hear the shortcomings of a lot of things you used to like, you hear all these flaws, but then when you have some music of such integrity as Led Zeppelin, as you get older, you just appreciate more and more deeper, deeper levels of the brilliance of that stuff. No doubt. It's, it's um, similar to like being able to taste notes in wine, mm-hmm. you know, like, like the, the more developed your palate gets, whether that be wine or food, mm-hmm. um, the experience becomes that much better. Yeah. I wonder, you know, the way that that music is consumed now, uh, it's, you know, there's just so many options and people are, are less likely to follow a band. Um, how that will transfer in the future, you know, like I really do hope that, that people, you know, that are, you know, hopefully like our audience members that 19 to 25 years old that are, that are you know, really embarking on a musical journey that they appreciate the value of following a band, mm-hmm. you know, cause I just don't think that's as strong as it obviously as it was in the, in the past. Well, there aren't like current bands really to follow. In that well, same I'm, way. I, what I'm saying yeah. is, is like follow a band like Led Zeppelin right. or, you know, any of these classic artists, but listen to them not once in a while, but throughout your career. Oh, right, right, right. Because it, it helped, definitely it's helped me, you yeah. know, like to, yeah. to have the, just this staple to yeah. follow and it's what it's done for me as a musician uh, is it's always given me a frame of reference, mm-hmm. you know, because I remember not only hearing Led Zeppelin for the first time, but trying to play one of their songs on the guitar for mm-hmm. the first time. I mean, mm-hmm. hell, I remember trying to play like our, our one of the first rehearsals that we would do like mm-hmm. when we had our Led Zeppelin band. That point to now, I'm an enormously better musician, yeah. you know? So having... Uh, that that constant has always has given me a good marker point to gauge where am I at as a musician and mm-hmm. what am I trying to get better at? Because uh, you'll never play music that is less about the notes that you're playing. Right. It's so, yeah, it's so intangible and it's so deep. And I've told you, I'm sure many times that when we were doing the Zeppelin project, um, it was the most humbling and frustrating and rewarding yeah. and everything. Yeah. And it became consuming of my life because I had to be in it for hours a day yeah. just to like keep my head above water. Oh yeah, to even have it sound halfway decent. Yeah, and at the but at the end of it, I mean, just think about how how much better we've gotten. Yeah, you yeah. know, like and that you take that that skill set and apply it to you know, yeah. really any exactly. uh, genre of music that you play now. Yep. Um, so definitely worth following a band. Yeah. You know, like yeah. really just picking, let's just say five bands mm-hmm. and. The, for over the span of 20, 30 years, just listening to that music again and again. But and now again. you're saying following a band from the standpoint that through the course of your own life, you continue to listen to them yeah. as opposed to like, for me, Led Zeppelin was already gone yeah, by the same. time I got, you know, sure. so I wasn't following them. Like their the new album is out. I'm going to go get it. Like it was all done. It was all yeah. said and done. Yeah. But yet so you're saying the word following meaning that you listen to 
consistently something over a long period of time. Right. Yeah. I like that. It's, you know, it's got to become your religion. Yeah. You know, because you just, you get deeper with it. And it's, again, it's just, it's become a very good marker point uh, for me. And I'm so glad that I've gone through that. Sometimes I think, what are you doing? (laughs) You know, like, like you're going like so extreme with this, but I wouldn't take it back, you know, because when, when we're listening to this music, when we were younger, there was just something about it. We didn't even know about, Mm -hmm. you know, playing music to the extent that we knew now. There was just something about it that was just captivating. Mm -hmm. That's the truth. You know, you got to follow that stuff. So anybody listening, I would say like, what, what is that music for you? What, what is the, the band or the individual artist that really makes you feel something? Take that and just keep listening to it. Listen to all of the cuts, you know, not just like the hits, but all of the cuts. And as you grow as a musician, you can kind of see where you're at along mm-hmm. the way based on you know, remembering where you were when you started listening to that kind of stuff. Do you ever do this with recordings, especially things that you're really, really super familiar with? Devote an entire listening session to uh, listening to something that is not obvious for you. So if you're drawn to listen to the guitar parts predominantly, like I've gone through Led Zeppelin albums, and I go, I'm not going to listen to anything but the bass parts. I'm going to just like focus in on what John Paul Jones is doing and tune out Bonham, tune out the vocals and just listen to the bass. I do that all the time. Yeah. And I don't just do that with Zeppelin. I, yeah. I, I, I really attribute that to, uh, to forming my ear. Mm-hmm. I used to, and I still kind of do this, but, but I remember the process being listening to, uh, the best of Def Leppard, mm-hmm. right? Um, over the course of an entire summer. So it took three to four months and I would listen to the best of Def Leppard every day with headphones on and every single time I'd listen to a track, I would try and pick out a different instrument and isolate that instrument. Yeah. So what that did for me was be able to to pull apart the mix, Yeah. right? And then you translate that to playing live now, I, if I want to hear your kick pattern, right. or if I want to hear your hi-hat pattern even, right, and yeah. dial in with that, I now have the ear to do it. It's like a brain workout. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then as you as you listen to, it gives you just a deeper, uh, like a richness to listening to music. So your overall um, audio experience increases, you know, yeah. not, as, not just if you're trying to be a better musician, but just as a music consumer. So, uh, yeah, I, I do that all the time. Yeah. Um, and, and I... I always advise students to do that because there's just so much gold that goes into a track. So like at the end of it, you mean you're, most people are going to hear the singer first, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or if, me. You, well, same with me. Yeah, same <laughs> yeah. with me either. Um, but general public, yeah, we'll, yeah. you know, we hear the singer first. And in le- if you're an instrumentalist, you're going to be listening to your your instrument. But if you can do what, what you're asking here, not only does your appreciation for for that band go up, but your musicianship goes up because you understand now the what it takes to make something great. Right. You know, uh, there's just so many components to a great mix yep. that when it comes at you, it's a, at first it's just a one wave, right? But if you right. can get all the tasting notes out of that, my goodness, it's that's the real musical experience. Yep. You know, that's that's the real, and it's such an invaluable attribute to your musicianship to be able to have ears to hear beyond what you are playing totally. and even tune out what you're playing and really key into what other people around you are playing. If you can tune out what you're playing, your, your musicianship goes through the roof. Yeah. 
right? Because now you're part of a band. Yeah. You know, you're not just being all about you. Yeah. Um, and then you hear, I would say for me, it's mostly like I'm able to tap into the groove mm -hmm. of what everybody else is doing, mm -hmm. you know, and it helps my timing or maybe it helps like my harmonic choices. Yeah. Uh, and how can you not get better? You yeah. know what I mean? Thinking like that. Yeah, man. But uh, all right. Interesting riff we just had right there. All right. Well, that was a good show. I'll see you next <laughs> yeah. week. Yeah. <laughs> um, On Led Zeppelin part two. So... Yeah, go ahead. Let's I'm going to go next. Yes, please. Because I want to actually, in an odd way, tie this to Led Zeppelin. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> my ears are perked up. And as we go through, I have specific albums that have influenced me, but my two first ones out of the gate here are broad, just bands that have influenced me. My second one, I got to go Rush. Okay. Rush is, I got into them after Zeppelin, but such, um, a lot of the things we just said would still apply in terms of being so interesting musically and holding up over the years and things like that. But what I think is interesting about the juxtaposition of Led Zeppelin and Rush, and I know that as a drummer, I'm not unique in having those two bands as like two of my top influences, but I don't think you could have two more opposite players from John Bonham and Neil Peart. Truth. I mean, like night and day, so opposite. Specifically from the standpoint of what, I would call Neil to be a very compositional drummer and meaning his actual drum parts are completely composed, very cerebral and thought out and methodically constructed and every bit as hooky and as much of a part of the composition as anything else. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the reasons why when you go to a rush show, so many people are air drumming because you can predictably, you know, certain fills are coming, you know, every little note, he, you know, he thinks of it as a part of the song and it, why would you change it? Because I played that fill there to elevate the second chorus into the bridge for a reason. And I constructed that fill like very specifically the flip side of that coin is John Bonham. He's just got a vibe and an mm -hmm. attitude in his playing. Mm -hmm. And when you listen to those, you know, as many live Led Zeppelin bootlegs as you and I have, man, tempos are different every night. Fills are drastically different every night. He'll never play the same fill twice in a row. And even to some extent, parts might be even a little different or whatever. So I always look at those two as being such polar opposites. And I look at it as like improvisational drumming and compositional drumming mm -hmm. being that the two extreme ends of the spectrum. And I would say I'm perfectly 50, 50 split between the two in terms of what's influenced me. And it's something that I really think about specifically when I am uh, given an opportunity to be in an original project where I'm coming up with parts and things on my own. Uh, there's always a blend of thinking compositionally and thinking improvisationally. I want to have things that are thought out and structured and serve a musical purpose, but then also have like some fireworks and some energy and like some things out of left field that people won't expect. So anyway, do you, do you um, organize when you're going to uh, have the improv part of your performance? Yeah, I do. So that's the, <laughs> which that's that the in and of itself is not very improv. <laughs> well, no, no. I mean, <laughs> but, but like, like you give yourselves the, you give yourself the boundaries, right? But, exactly. But that's, yeah. that's the, the blend that you're yeah. talking about, Yeah. you know, but it's, it's the truth. I mean, even in just like, I think for me as, as, as non-drummer, just listening to the difference between both players, 
Neil's always been like very just on, you know what yeah. I mean? To me, it's just, there's, it's just, there's this not is, a lot of grease or like, no, it's, it's just, it's just perfect. It's a little, you know, it's mechanical. Just, yeah. It's, it's just executed. Yeah. You know what I mean? And done. Um, where Bonham's, it just, his feel is just different. You yeah. know, I've always resonated more with that. Um, and Neil's sound but, is very small and thin, like not in a bad way, in, in a rush way. No, it's but just like, yeah, it's, it's compared just, to Bonham, you know, and my wife who like, Every woman um, on earth doesn't like Rush. Um, her complaint, her complaint about Rush is not Getty Lee. It's, I mean, most people that don't like Rush, it's because of Getty Lee's voice. Mm-hmm. She doesn't like Rush because she thinks it doesn't groove. Hmm. That's uh, her complaint, yeah. and I won't argue that point really necessarily, even because I know what she means when she says that. Right. I I hear it in a different way. I don't think that it doesn't groove, but I can absolutely understand someone saying that. Sure. Yeah. Like it doesn't groove in a bottom way. Right. It's not like, loose. Yeah. Yeah. Not even not loose. It's just not, I think what she means by it, it's just too precise and mechanical. Right. But, and also not very like bottom heavy and just thin sounding. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But still just a perfect example of how music's not one dimensional. Right. You know, like, like everybody's has different tastes yeah. for, for these things. And there's always room for whatever your truth is as a, yeah. as a musician. You just yeah. got to stick to that. All right. Um, I don't know. I don't even need a reference and I know what it's going to okay. be. So my, my next song, one that I've, I've always listened to loved still do this day and gets me pumped up dire straits money for nothing. Okay. Oh my goodness. All right. Now it wasn't until recently that I started listening to the lyrics of that song, like really listening to the lyrics going, all right, pretty um, pretty ahead of his time, you yeah, know, yeah. as far as like yeah. some of those vocal choice, uh, lyrical choices. But I just thought that that intro is just, it's so long, you know yeah. what I mean? It just crescendos perfectly into this most epic guitar riff that how could you not want to air guitar that for days, right, right. you know? Uh, and then just the whole, the whole thing of it, man, just the whole, the whole groove all the way through the tune, beginning to end, every time it gets me. Yeah. Ever I listen to it probably at least once a week, if not twice a week. Wow. You know what I mean? And, and yeah. I'm not listening to it from a trying to figure out technically what they're doing perspective. Right. I'm just enjoying the music. So yeah. it's like probably like the song I enjoy more than any other songs, as far as just like a music consumer, not right. yeah, listening yeah. to it, trying to deconstruct and figure out how this is right. gonna make me better. Right. Just how does this make me feel? Yeah. Uh, and there's just something really magical about that song for me that that just it just really like makes me feel awesome. And then I've always been uh, I've always been attracted to Sting's voice, mm, you yeah, know. Uh, and, and he comes in at the end and, and sings that. It's just the perfect icing on the cake for yeah. for the ending of that. Um, I mean, but I remember listening to that song when I was I was like six years old, you know, seven years old, and still to this day, still really moves me. Yeah, right on. I like that. Uh, okay. I'm going to go with another album. Okay. Mid-90s, James Taylor Live. Wow. This. Wow. Have you heard it? No, but, but oh, oh, left field here. All right. Oh, man. Like the absolute A-list, most killing session cats in his band. Okay. Jimmy Johnson on bass, Mike Landau on guitar, Don Grolnick on piano. Carlos Vega on drums. Dude, I'm telling you, like Spotify yeah. that thing tonight. Oh, no doubt. In the most in the most bottom vein, Carlos Vega is so unbelievably behind the beat 
in such a beautiful way that is so hard to replicate. He doesn't play probably one drumistically cool thing on that record at all. It's just unbelievable feel. The way he's able to sit so far back, you and I have talked about this before related to Bonham, being able to sit so far back without having a drag and having the trust among the rhythm section that the drums can be way back there and everyone else, it doesn't feel weird. It feels amazing. Oh, man. It is such a unique... I can't think of one single album I've heard in my entire life that feels like that album. Awesome. And it is magic. It's unbelievable. And Carlos Vega, man, is... I know that he's a guy I could get deeper into who I, I haven't yet, but um, he's just unbelievable on that album, that live album. So on a, on a future show, when we're talking about what we're working on musically, mm-hmm. um, my thing is, that I'm going to talk about is this year I've been committed to really learning to play behind the beat and mm-hmm. mastering that. Cool. So we'll reference that yeah. when, um, when we have that and conversation. And listen to that album between now and yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. It's, dude, it'll blow your mind. Okay, yeah, that's stay tuned for that one because that's going to be awesome. All right, here, let me go next with Beast of Burden, Rolling Stones. Mm. Okay, now another, for me, groove song. I mean, yes, starts off with a guitar riff. Everybody knows Keith's guitar riffs. But um, but Charlie Watts on that, man. Yeah. It's just yeah. awesome. Yep. I always love that guy's drumming approach because he just seems so prim and proper, you right. know, like when he's playing, but... My goodness, can that guy lay a groove down? Yeah. You know, and it just comes in and it just makes you move a certain way. Like I hear that song and I visualize how Mick Jagger's dancing to that. Yeah. You know, like when he was in the vocal booth, you know, like like singing that song. Uh so I'm I'm I mean, if you can't tell already, but like I'm what really captures me when I'm listening to music most is the is the the groove, the feel mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. You know, I, I like a very specific style of music. Um, get behind the beat playing, you know, Mm -hmm. like, but just stuff that that just makes you slither, you know. Uh, And that song for me has always done that. Really Mm -hmm. into that. Yeah, man. Staying in that vein, then, uh, probably an album that not a lot of people know is the Mike Landau Live 2000 double CD that was live at the Baked Potato in the year 2000 with Toss Panos on drums. (laughs) Yes. Um. Toss Panos on drums, again, Jimmy Johnson on bass. Mm-hmm. So Landau and Jimmy Johnson both having played on that James Taylor record, this is them with Toss Panos doing um, Landau stuff. And I used to, that trio was a working unit in LA for a while around like mm-hmm. the early 2000s when I moved out here. And I would go see him every chance I got. And I don't think any living drummer has influenced my drumming more than Toss Panos. Wow. And he is my, I will just flat out say he's my favorite drummer alive. Have you got to spend any time with him? A little bit, yeah. I went and saw him a couple of weeks ago. I mean, I we don't hang, but like I talk to him when I see him at shows and stuff. Um, sure. He's very nice, very cool. I actually did take one lesson with him years and years ago Wow, that he probably doesn't even remember. Um, but man, he, um, the best way I can describe him is that he's tight and loose at the same time. Mm. And that's one of my biggest goals when I play man it's tight and loose at the same time and just the way he approaches his sound the way he conceptualizes interaction and rhythms and things it's otherworldly and it is so awesome and i've seen him do so many different kinds of gigs in fact he's playing with um robin ford he told me he's playing on september 20th 
with Robin Ford. So I'm going to try to get tickets. At the Baby No, at um, some bigger theater. I forget where it is. But we should go. I'm going oh, yeah, to, I don't I'd have tickets yet, but it. I'm for sure going to go. Always I, that's one, that's like one of his main things he does. And I haven't seen him play with Robin Ford. I've mm -hmm. seen him do a bunch of smaller projects at the Potato. And every time, dude, I, I stay all night. I sit. I just am a total nerd and just sit and stare at him. Mm. <laughs> it's, what, what's, what's the biggest thing that you've you've taken away from that experience as a player think well let me think i i would say the biggest thing i've taken away is his sound and feel and trying to reverse engineer it he's the only person who i can describe that way as being tight and loose at the same time and how he does that is a magical thing that I'm always trying to figure out. Mm -hmm. It has to do with his internal dynamics, volume of his limbs relative to each other. It has to do with his beat placement, his timing placement of limbs relative to each other. I mean, to be speaking super analytically about it, you know, um, all kinds of stuff. And I've thought about all that with him, man, and his sound, just the way he tunes his drums, his, um, his choices of symbols have influenced me a lot and mm -hmm. sounds that I like to get. Um, he tends to have really big, organic, warm, washy sounds and things like that. He's not a staccato drummer at all. He's a legato drummer, I would say. Um, and everything about it, I just, I can't get enough, dude. I love it. Mm -hmm. now, now, picking it apart on that level that, that you're talking about here, how much of that, besides the sound of the symbols, but like the overall technique and, and you know, the real depths that you've gone through, how much of that are you able to work into to your playing without sounding too much like him? Well, I think it all gets just stirred into the pot. Mm -hmm. I don't think I could never sound like him, even if that was my goal. Um, but I think some of the key characteristics of his playing, I try to for sure make ingredients in my playing, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I, the way he just will do, some fills like out of the blue and crazy. It's, I can't even describe it. Michael Landau live 2000. It's on iTunes. I'm not sure if it's on Spotify, but it is on iTunes and it's worth spending the money on. It's unreal. And Michael Landau sings on some of it. Um, and Landau's guitar playing oh, yeah, is crazy. just, and for the guitar players out there, back to the James Taylor record, steamroller blues on that james taylor record is one of the most awesome guitar solos i've ever heard yeah. it's just so landau and it's so great isn't that interesting that that uh if if we had those guys here and we're talking to them we say well how do you make yourself sound like that what do you think they would say i don't know i just do right. you know like they just you just do it like we spent right. all this time deconstructing what it is that the people do right and at the end of the day they're just doing what they do yeah. Same thing we're doing. You know, they're, they're influenced by people. They're just right. trying to be the best version of themselves. They're not thinking about it, but they have thought a lot about it. Right. Yeah. Yes. That's what, that's what I mean. It's like, yeah. you know, there's, it goes into the technique, but then, like you said, you can never make yourself sound like that, yeah. you know, because, well, then you'd just be a reproduction. You wouldn't have any originality. Yeah. Um, I just, I've always found that fascinating. You know, that, like as, as many people that we've spoken to and that you know, individually we've spoken to, like, like really just great players, they could tell you who their influences are and they mm -hmm. can tell you their choice of gear and their practice routines and, and you know how they think about music or whatnot. But at the end of the day, they're just, they're just doing them. Mm -hmm. You know, like they're just, they're just doing it and this is what you sound like. Mm -hmm. 
that to me is one of the most fascinating things doing this, this conversation series is just seeing that that's pretty consistent across the board. You know, mm-hmm. like there's no, there's no magical sauce to any of this. Yeah. It's, it's just be the best version of you and yeah. not try to be somebody else, you yeah. know, just, just be you. Uh, we can go down a whole rabbit hole with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm going to say it. All right. Anyway, okay. I think it's your turn. Okay. Yes. Here we go. Uh, let me give you something different here. Okay. I got a real like 80s vibe going on here. Okay. <laughs> I'm going with In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins. Oh, yes. Okay. God, that guy's voice just kills me. Yeah. Every time. I love him. Right. I, I had heard somewhere, or maybe I read it, that um, he just ad libbed those lyrics. Wow. It's just like in the studio, and the, that's just what came out. And isn't that considered to be the most famous drum fill of all time? Wouldn't I, you say? It was. I mean, in those like Rolling Stone dugum, articles, dugum, like dugum, dugum, yeah. dugum, dugum, dugum. it's yeah. the essence of the song, <laughs> right. man. Like, it's, yeah. <laughs> but just how awesome is it? Like, like it's just ethereal sound, yeah. and then his voice comes in. You're like, this is like God. This, yeah. this is amazing. And I'm, it's like dated, but not in a bad way. Yeah, it's right. right. Awesome. It's, it's just it's yeah. still perfect. Yeah. It, man. Yeah. So that that tune, um, not so much for the group, but just the the whole like experience yep. i just yep. feel like just i'm in a vibe. world yep. there i think i i think i first heard that watching david copperfield ex- escape from alcatraz when i was like seven years old or something Whoa. like that it might have been one of the yeah. background tracks and just thinking like this is amazing yeah yeah which that just reminded me of a of another song i want to talk about after this so you're nice. up. okay um, um another maybe obscure one before I go full jazz on you. <laughs> so, <laughs> Thank you. I'll keep it in the vocalist realm for a couple more. Um, Jonathan Brook, okay. 10 Cent Wings. The album is 10 Cent Wings. Uh, Abe Laboreal Jr. on drums. Oh, yeah. And uh, in the early Abe days, like one of his probably first recordings, I don't one of his first bigger recordings. Um, <clears throat> so real quick, funny story about this album. I don't remember... Who turned me on to it or where, or, but it was pretty soon after I had moved to LA, I think my roommate at the time, we were both kind of just discovering Abe at that point. And Jonathan Brook is not very well known, but the people who know her, she has like a cult following to this day. Mm-hmm. And um, that 10 Cent Wings and then her, I think it was her next record. It was called Plum. Plum is a great record. Uh, and then Steady Pole. Those are all amazing, but this Tencent Wings, um, a lot of the same things about uh, the Zeppelin thing that get me. Abe has a humongous, giant, wide pocket, awesome sound, big, fat sound, really interesting, creative parts that complement. You know, it's a lot of things that you would not associate with a singer-songwriter, acoustic guitarist record. Mm -hmm. He just brings the heat like full on and it's so perfect. Um, and one quick funny story about it. When I went on, I think my first date with my wife, we were both, because she's a vocalist, um, we were talking about music and she's like, what are your top three favorite albums of all time? And I was like, Les Upland four and Jonathan Brook, 10 cent wings. And she's like, what? Jonathan Brook, 10 cent wings. One of my favorite albums of all time. Oh man. And the rest is history. Yeah. <laughs> Cause like nobody knows that record. Yeah, right. gonna and say. I was like, wait, I just met somebody who that's her favorite record too. That's weird. So wow. anyway, that's a great record. I don't even know if or where it's available anywhere. I don't, I know it's out of print. I don't know digitally where it's available. 
Um, but if you have a way to check out, uh, some of it's on YouTube. I'm pretty sure some you of still it's have on a copy. I do. You know what? I have it on iTunes in my iTunes library, and I actually, within the last year, repurchased a CD hard copy of it on eBay. Oh wow! Just because I just wanted to have a CD copy of it, and oh. I have my like original CD copy somewhere. But yeah, dude, super important record for me. I love it. <laughs> wow. I, yeah. I think it's so cool that that um, a lot of your choices are, are very player driven. Um, mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like that. that's that's really awesome. So like when, when you consume music for the first time, um, like meaning like you hear something new, mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be like brand new music, but like you're you're exposed to it for the first time. What What's your initial impression? Like, are you listening for the musicianship? Are you listening for the song? Or like, what what are you listening for? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I would say I'm probably first and foremost listening for the song and the sound, like the sound meaning not necessarily production, I guess production, but if it's sonically interesting, like if it's an interesting drum sound or guitar sound, you know, I have a lot of guitar sounds that I really am drawn to that I love, you know, guitarists and pedals and all that stuff and mm -hmm. like Landau for that same reason. Landau is one of my favorite guitarists because I just am blown away by his tone and his sound. So I'm drawn, I guess, to songs and I'm drawn, I'm drawn to tones and sounds and I'm drawn to, um, if it has a, a feeling of like organicness and interaction and, and things like that to it, you know, I don't, I don't dislike, but I don't listen to a lot of like highly produced pop music or stuff like that, mm -hmm. you know? Um, Cause I just like things that are kind of like pure and raw. And I think that's what I'm drawn to, I guess, is something that I feel is just pure and interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, how many listens through like a song does it take you to like really, really get into the musicianship of what's happening? Is it by the second listen, by the end of the first listen? What, what do you mean? Meaning like, so like everything you just talked about is your, is your first take of, of, mm -hmm. of, of a track, but how many how many listens past the initial listen does it take for you to really start exploring what the musicians are doing? Like on, on a, on a deconstructed mm, Well, that's, level. that's already always happening. I mean, if it's noticeably not good musicianship, it doesn't even get through the door of my brain. Mm -hmm. It doesn't even get past. Like I don't even listen to it. So all of those other things, I, the musicianship is, I guess a given and I'm always listening to that. What's your definition of musicianship? Oh man, we're getting serious here. Yeah. Um, my definition of musicianship is playing the right thing at the right time. Oh yeah. Good one. I guess. I mean, yeah, I don't no, know. That's perfect. I don't know how else to say it. Um, Choices. Or playing, playing something interesting that propels the song forward. And I, I am drawn to a lot of things that are unexpected. I like it when I'm surprised I like it when I'm listening to something and I'm surprised, mm -hmm. you know, or to me, that's interesting because I've heard so much music and so much music is so cookie cutter and inside the box. I enjoy, uh, just, you know, something that makes me stop and go, Oh, that's cool. Something unexpected. I like totally. That. I've been listening to that song, bad guy. Um, I can't remember the name of the artist. She's, she's an, a contemporary artist people listening to this are going to be like, yeah, I know this girl. I know exactly who it is. And I can't think of her name, but, uh, it, the, something about the, the production mm -hmm. really interesting. It was just like the snap of the fingers in place of the, um, in place of the snare drum in certain spots. Mm -hmm. to, like my ear was just like, uh, 
All right. Oh, cool. I get yeah. it. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, like, and just these little things, bells and whistles in the production that I was like, okay, interesting choices, mm-hmm. you know? And that's, that's what's super cool. Uh, Billy, yeah. Billy, uh, Oh, Billy Eilish. Yes. Dude, I like her, man. I, man, me yeah, too. I like her. Everybody, um, the people listening that are like 20 years old are probably like, <laughs> you guys are just such assholes. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, this young girl that we hear. <laughs> no, there's an artist I work with right now who is in that realm and she loves her and she turned me on to her. We do one of her songs in the show. Yeah. And yeah. I, I like her a lot. Man, that production is just great. Yeah. Like really, really interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I thought uh, like when, when she goes, duh, the first time I heard that, I was like, I hate that. And by the third time, I'm like, I love that. Oh, I don't know that particular song. Yeah, I just, check I that her. out. It's, it's funny too. You say you bring her up as far as sounds, because when we do her stuff on the gig, I'm triggering samples of not off of her record, but to emulate those exact sounds, like the, uh, the finger snaps yeah, and all yeah. those like production sounds and things that you really can't emulate on live drums. Yeah. I'm triggering all samples of all that stuff to get that sound, you know? It, to me, it's, it's so interesting. It's uh, interesting. It's, um, comforting and rewarding to know that music will always propel forward based on people's ideas. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And people thinking outside the box mm-hmm. and trying just, it might be just the, the littlest thing that makes it different and, yeah. and having the courage to do it and then commit to it Yeah, is, I mean, you, it might take one out of a million artists to, you know, to have a, a, an artist that pushes the, the needle forward, mm-hmm. but there's always going to be that, yeah. right? Like yeah. just when you think like nobody could ever do anything right. else, you know, and then this girl pops up and you're like, she's doing everything that everybody else has already done, but not. Right. You yeah, know, exactly. and, and that's what's so cool and interesting yeah. about music. And, and uh, I think it just keeps tying back to what we were saying earlier about just being honest with the musicianship and the musician that you are, mm-hmm. you know, because that's the way that, that you're going to be the most authentic. Because all the people that we've that we've talked about so far that's the one thread, yeah. you know, like they don't, they're not anybody other than themselves. Yeah. Super yeah. cool. All right. Um, so next song for me is going to be off of an album called Octung Baby by U2, even better than the real thing. Mm, yeah. I can remember being probably Theo's age and um, hearing that come out of these big speaker systems in the basement of my house and like my head was spinning. Yeah. Going, this is, I don't even know what this is. Yeah. You know, it's just the sound is so unique and so just edgy and... No pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I, if, if, there, if, if a sound needed to be associated with the word cool, it, to me, it's that song. Yeah. It's the beginning of that song. You heard that and you're like, wow, these guys have listened to a lot of Coldplay. (laughs) (laughs) Man, but even still, like just listening to it, it's it's just still to my ears contemporary and and just like right on the 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 edge. (laughs) It's Um, a Bono five hit. Yeah, man. So that that's that's the next one for me. Even better than the real thing, you uh, two because of the of the sounds. Uh, cool. Yeah. All yeah, right. Yeah. Go ahead. We'll go a couple more each. Okay, a couple more each. I'll. Jeez, uh, a couple more. Okay. We'll do a part two if we need to. Um, this is a record from 2016, and the the, the most recent newest thing that has had such an impact on me. 
in the last probably 10 years, nothing has had as much impact on me as this record. And it's Emily's De-Evolution by Esperanza Spalding. Okay. You know this album? I do not. Check it out. Esperanza Spalding, I've been a huge fan forever. I think she's amazing. Um, pushing boundaries, all that stuff. She's a bass player. She's a vocalist. She plays jazz. She plays whatever. She plays everything. So this is basically her, um, maybe her, it's her like fifth album or something. She won the year that Justin Bieber came out and was huge. She beat Justin Bieber in the Grammys for best new artist. And she was hated by all the Bieber fans wow. for that. So, cool. and first, I think first time for a jazz artist winning the Grammy for best new artist. Anyway, Emily's de-evolution is, um, her taking on an alter ego of this character, Emily. So it's kind of like a concept album, but it's her doing like a power trio. She's playing bass and singing and drums and guitar. And, um, just to me, such interesting, uh, engaging songs and playing. It's like we were talking about earlier. To me, it's the perfect marriage of like very interesting songwriting, great sounds and great musicianship and interaction and improvisatory components of it. And I've listened to that record so, so, so many times I've gone and seen her on that tour. I think twice there's a whole thing on YouTube, the entire concert, um, like she's dressed up in character. It's a whole like production aspect to it. Um, it's awesome. I'm definitely check out that record. No, I've never heard of it. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, uh, I'll give two more. Okay. All right. Uh, so my next one, Curveball. You ready for this? Mm-hmm. Gin and Juice, Snoop Dogg. Oh, nice. Yeah. All right. <laughs> cool. Um, I just love 90s hip hop. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just, I love it. I always have, I, I, the specifically the West Coast uh, yeah. 90s hip hop. Um, the production, the sound, like the attitude. Yeah. You know, it's just, it was, the, the, like it was, it was just hip hop before it became commercialized, right? You know, which the, album is it? Uh, or what? I don't, I don't know. Are you just saying Snoop, just Dog, Snoop, Snoop, Snoop Dogg, Dogg in general? Song, yeah, the song Gin and Juice. Oh, Gin and Juice yeah. is the song. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Um, but just that uh, that whole era was just it was so real to me that remi- it reminds me of like late '60s, early '70s rock and roll. You mm-hmm. know, it was just right in the, at the time when it it was all coming together like like the talents were were really becoming collective yeah and these people had been chipping away at their craft for years and now we're starting to break through as far as like their understanding of music yeah and and you can hear it in the authenticity of the of the um of the recordings totally. you know it's just people at the top of their game like and being incredibly creative on, on all aspects. So gin and juice, Snoop Dogg. I was a huge fan of the chronic back in the day. Oh yeah. Dude. Until that's... your dad took it away. <laughs> that was even post Led Zeppelin. <laughs> yeah. That was even, yeah. But yeah. Yeah, man. <laughs> that would Dr. definitely Dre, be one to like, take away. <laughs> genius stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, just, just really genius stuff. Yeah. Okay. You're up and then I'm up and then we're out. Okay. I might have to go one more time. Yeah, that's fine. Please, please. Okay. I'm going to start having to lump things together. Two records that I'm going to lump together. Herbie Hancock Thrust, oh, yeah. 1974. Uh, Wayne Krantz, Two Drink Minimum. This would be like mid-90s. Um, it seems like maybe an odd pairing for mm-hmm. people that know those records, but I'm going to purely nerd out on a drumming level here. Both of those records really broke my mind apart in terms of 
the approach to the instrument and how they, um, Mike Clark was the drummer on Thrust and Zach Danziger on Two Drink Minimum, uh, how they would approach the drums from, um, to me, what I consider to be like a really true four-way coordination standpoint, as opposed to like having a kick snare hat pocket and just like thinking in terms of those parts playing these like broken patterns between limbs and having it be so funky and feel so good and a real flowing creativity and thrust in particular. Um, he, it's like a funk album, but mm -hmm. it's played like stream of consciousness. Typically what creates the groove in funk is repetition, right? Mm-hmm it's like a funk record with no repetition and it's super funky. Wow. And it's like, I still, I still listen to that record all the time. Like once a month, at least I will, it, that record changed my life completely. Can there not be like anything more challenging to do than well, stream so, of consciousness funk, you know, like, and that's something I practice, man, is you have to be so deeply connected to your instrument. Absolutely. To where, Things are flowing out of you in a non-repetitive way, but in a such perfectly groovy pocket. Mm -hmm. It's an it's next level, man. Yeah. It is like a lifelong thing that I will aspire to. You have to be ultimately and, committed to the moment to be yeah. doing that. And and then two drink minimum Wayne Krantz is in that same category for me, but that record is a guitar trio and it's just like so balls to the wall, super aggressive, New York fusion, like and the interplay of that trio, one person will do one thing and then it sparks the next thing. And you can just hear in real time the high, high level interaction of these people at the top of their game. It's mm -hmm. amazing. So those two records kind of go to, I'll lump those together. I love that. Like just be, be, you, when you know that people are really tuned into each other, yeah. right? And, and you're catching that connectivity. Mm -hmm. uh, when you're a musician, you like you, you get to understand that a little bit deeper because then you've experienced it and you know, you yeah. know what I mean? And then you know what it takes to do that for a sustained period of time yeah. and, and at that kind of level, that's really hip. You're hearing the conversation. Exactly. Yeah. And you're able to understand the language that's being spoken. Yeah. And it's enjoyable. Ex totally. <laughs> yes. All right. Um, well, this next record is a jazz record. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So... Uh, I'm going to close my my selection out with uh, uh, an album that really pushed me into songwriting. And it's an album called Lemon Parade by a band called Tonic, hmm. who was a um, late 90s, early 2000 um, pop rock group mm -hmm. that are from, they're from LA. Uh, they had that song, If You Could Only See. Yes. Okay, right? Yep. yep. Um, and the guy singing, his name was Emerson Hart. My goodness, what a voice on that guy. Uh, but the the guitar arrangements were so interesting. So he played uh, a Chet Atkins guitar. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these, but it's like a, a hybrid of an electric and an acoustic guitar. Hmm. Um, and he they would detune the instrument and put a capo on it. And he would come up with these incredible hmm. riffs that just had this electric-y, acoustic-y, folky feel. And then the guitarist, Jeff Russo, uh, would come in with like these Boston style harmonies and just textured distorted guitar parts. Wow. Uh, and then over top of that, you had incredible songwriting, like as far as like lyric writing and then 
harmonizing. They were both really, really good singers. And then the the foundation of the band was really like driving rock. Uh, and that first record that they put out was so raw mm. uh, and it, it was a four piece. And mm-hmm. that's what it sounded like, you yeah. know, like a four piece rock band that um, that had just incredible texture. So it wasn't really uh, that song, If You Could Only See, that got me. There's like all the other cuts on that I record. I think that's the only song I know from that record. Maybe if I heard it, but... Yeah, there's, yeah. I mean, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of them, but um, just something very different. You know, I was I was really into alternate tunings at that point, um, listening to Led Zeppelin, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And this was like the first band that I heard that was doing this in a, in at that time a contemporary way you mm-hmm. know what i mean they're taking these alternate tunings and and like pushing the limits with it and then you started to hear bands like goo goo dolls start to do that mm-hmm. uh but to me lemon prey was was uh and still is very very influential i still listen back to it and, and the songs my ears haven't aged the good songwriting holds up the good yeah. production holds up and more than anything the playing holds up cool. so that's yeah, my last one i'll check that out for sure okay my final two uh, I'm going to put together are both, they're jazz. Yes. <laughs> um, they're both Miles Davis records and they're both from the Tony Williams era of Miles Davis, who if Toss Panos, who I said earlier is my favorite drummer alive, Tony Williams is my favorite drummer across the board of all time. Got like even above John Bonham. Sure. Tony is so, so deep for me. Tony's on both these records, four and more. Did I already say the names of the records? Four and More and Nefertiti are the two records. Cool. So Four and More um, is earlier in the evolution of that band. And it's just everything is blazing fast. And Tony is like 19 years old and sounds unbelievable. And that record changed the shape of jazz forever, mm-hmm. like flat out. And then the companion to that is 1967, Nefertiti, still Tony. But, and almost the same band too, but just unbelievable evolution in the course of three years of where it went to, it was real like spacey and open. And again, the sound is a big part of what gets me, especially on Nefertiti, the sound of the drums and the sound of his ride cymbal. It's just, that's been my quest for my whole life. I tell people all the time, I, I just want my ride cymbal to sound like Nefertiti (laughs) and that's all I want. That's it. <laughs> like that's to me the perfect sounding ride symbol. And that's a, it's a perfect album. And then I'm going to sneak in one last one and I'm not even going to say anything about it. The first rage against the machine record. Oh man. <laughs> I love that album. All right. Yeah. This has uh, been our most well, yeah. self indulgent episode <laughs> yeah. we've ever done. But a lot but of good insights yeah. <laughs> shared and I still, still lessons along the way. So I think we should, um, we should post all these, make a uh, list and yeah, post it. Yeah, yeah. Post them in the show notes. Yeah. Um, and maybe we'll do a part two at some point from yeah. there, but, uh, uh, future shows, like we said, we're going to, we are going to have musical goals mm-hmm. that, uh, we're working on for the year and, um, maybe our approach to how we set them, uh, and, We'll just kind of take the conversation from there. Yeah. But uh, go listen to some of those records. Yeah. And we'll see you guys next show. Thanks for listening to Musician Mindset with Dave Johnstone and Jason Land. You can contact the show through Facebook and Instagram at Musician Mindset Podcast. If you like what you heard, please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes.